In our study thus far in the Gospel according to John, John has shown us the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. He has shown us the forerunner of Jesus, that is, John the Baptist, and the purpose for which God sent him. He has also shown us in our studies the first disciples and his selecting of those disciples. And then last time we were together, and actually it was two weeks ago, I had a different message last week, but two weeks ago he showed us the first sign or the first miracle of his ministry at the wedding feast at Cana. And today as we come to this text, it is actually, but I did not want to title it this way because technically I could have misrepresented it. It's the first Passover, but it's the first Passover of his public ministry. It's not the first Passover that ever happened. It's not the first Passover that he was exposed to. But it is the first Passover in relationship to the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's very important for us to understand, knowing where John is going, the things that he's recorded, he's told us, is so that we can understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that we would come to believe through that understanding. And I think it's very appropriate, as he's early on in the ministry, and has just finished with the first miracle, that he now gives us an early opportunity to see, now listen, the character of Christ, what he's really like. And when we say that, is the Lord Jesus Christ, is God love? Yes. Is he gracious? Yes, he is. Is he merciful? Absolutely. And many understand those characteristics. They understand those qualities of God. But we also need to understand, and he presents it to us very quickly in his book, we need to understand that God is also righteous. God is also holy. God is also a just God. And though it may not be acceptable in our society today, we need to understand, and I'm getting an echo just so you have that for the tape, Dave, thank you. Uh, We also need to understand that God is a God of judgment. Many want to understand the gracious aspect of God, the loving aspect of God, and leave it there. But you haven't got the total picture of God if you leave it there. We need to see that God is a God of justice, and he absolutely, listen, hates sin. He hates it. Some only want to see one side of Jesus, a loving, compassionate babe in the stable. That's good to see that. But if we only see that and we do not see that he is fully God and he is a just God, a just Savior, and why he had to come, we end up with not a Jesus of the Bible, but we end up with another, if you will, a different, a different type, a different character of Jesus. And many do not want to see that aspect of it, but we see it very clearly in the presentation that comes here. Here we will see him as moving from a generous, very generous, and loving man who at a wedding feast, at a joyous occasion, supplied, as we saw, a very generous and gracious wedding gift to the couple by way of changing water to wine as we dealt with that. We're going to see him move from that to an outraged, without question, an outraged, righteously controlled 
though many do not see it that way, righteously controlled man who emptied the temple. Why? Because of its unrighteous activities. Let that sink in. He emptied the temple because of its unrighteous activities. Humanly devised. Humanly planned. Conveniently applied. Practical, yes. Righteous, no. We will see that as we go. First notice that we have a transition in verse 12, and it's a very significant one that I just need to point at least one thing out of it anyway uh, before we get to verse 13. As we come to this transition verse, you'll notice the wedding feast is finished and because he says, after this, after what? After the wedding feast that we just uh, exegeted to you and expounded upon in verses 1 through 11. After this wedding, what happens? He goes to Capernaum. And you'll notice that he says he goes down to Capernaum. Now, just for those of you who do have knowledge of the area geographically, from where he was in Cana, Capernaum is actually northeast of Cana. And it is northeast toward the Sea of Galilee. And it's right on the Sea of Galilee. Haven't actually been there and so forth. I can picture it in my mind's eye right now. And when he went there, it says he went down. And the reason he, it states that in Scripture is the scriptures would measure it in terms of elevation. So actually in elevation, he was going down even though he was going north. And that's just to help you a little bit because if you flip to a map, you can say, wait a minute, what do you mean he's going down? He's going up and he's, and, and that's why. It's because of the elevation. So again, we need to understand it in its context. And you'll notice that what happens is he stays there a few days at the end of the verse. But one the thing I want to point out to you is notice very clearly, because I think that this, in my personal opinion, is the clearest stated passage of Scripture that identifies that Jesus had half-brothers. Why? Because some would take it in context where it says his brothers and his sisters and say it refers to either believers or Jews. You can't do that here. Why? Look at the verse. It says he went down to Capernaum, and notice the distinctions. He and his mother and brothers, and then it says, and his disciples. His disciples were both Jews, and his disciples were both believers, and there's a distinction that's there. So again, the concept of Mary staying a virgin all her life is unbiblical. And we need to understand that Jesus Christ indeed did have half-brothers and half-sisters as the scriptures would indicate to us. And they go down with him, and they stay there a few days. Okay? Last time we were together, I mentioned to you, and this is the point to bring it out, because I've just said that he's going with his mother, and he's going with his brothers, that when he indicated to his mother when he said woman, that he was indicating a change of relationship. And I think it's very clear from the way John presents it in this book that it is so, that the relationship has changed with his mother and his family. Why again say that? Because from this point on, after verse 12, throughout the entire gospel account of John, there will be very little mention anymore about his family. The relationship is changed. He has now started his public ministry, and he's going to move from here 
go toward Jerusalem, as we will see in a second. And from now on, there'll be very little mentioned about his mother and his brothers, mostly when we get toward the cross, because the concentration is on the ministry that he came about, and that was to do the Father's will. So he moves now toward Jerusalem, verse 13. And he moves down toward Jerusalem to the temple. This is Herod's temple, and I'll explain just a brief thing about that in just a moment. But why does he go down to Jerusalem after a few days? Well, we find the answer in verse 13, and we see the temple of Herod in verses 13 to 18. So let's pick it up in verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was there. What is the significance of the Passover? We'll get to that in a second. And why did he go there? We need to understand that all males, that is all men, that were Hebrews, had to go to Jerusalem three times a year. It was a requirement. Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. I want you to see it. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law and the instruction that we're given. Well, I think we just need to take a brief look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 to 17, so you see that it's not an opinion here. Verse 14, Exodus 23, 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate feast, a feast to me, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I command you at the appointed time, in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall also observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field, also the feast of the ingathering. There's the three feasts. At the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field, Three times a year, all your, watch, males shall appear before the Lord God. That was required. All the males had to go to Jerusalem three times a year. For what feast? Number one, the Passover. That's what he's referring to when he mentions coming out of Egypt. Secondly, was for the time known as the Feast of Weeks. That may not mean much to you. It is also called the Feast of Harvest. That may not mean much to you. But it is also called something else. It is called Pentecost. That should ring a bell. And that is because it happened 50 days after, you will, the Passover. They were required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, required to go for the Feast of Weeks, or the, or the Pentecost, and also for the Feast of Tabernacles, which it says, or in our text, the Feast of Ingathering. And you may not know much by those two names, but it's also known by another name, and that is the Feast of Booths, and a lot of people know it by that. So on those three occasions, they, the males were required to go to Jerusalem. So when you get to verse 13, go back to our text in John chapter 2, he's going because it was required as a Jewish male to go up to Jerusalem. And so he's going, and he's going up for one of the three feasts. What is that? The Passover. Now let's understand something. I won't go into the depth of the Passover. You read the passage this morning responsively. But the Passover did symbolize this. It symbolized deliverance. It symbolized salvation. Egypt had basically the Jews under bondage. 
And God delivered them from that bondage and took them out of Egypt and delivered them graciously. And by remembering the Passover, they were recalling what God had done for them. They were recalling God's grace. They were going to celebrate God's gracious act and everything that he did for them. At first, they did it in their homes when they were actually called out of Egypt. And then, as you read in your responsive reading this morning, God said, the place that I will assign for you is the designated place that you will eventually go. And we know now from the revelation given that it was Jerusalem, and that's where they were to go. Now, to understand the settings, as Jesus goes in verse 13, what also would happen is there would be a pilgrimage there, and people would come from all over. Why? To obey God's commands. And I want you to get that. They were going there to obey God's commands. What were they going there to do? To remember what God had done. What else? They were going there to what? Worship the Lord. How? By way of sacrifices. Bringing their sacrifices to the temple and following through with the commands of God. They also went there for one other purpose. There was a temple tax that was given to the people. And you recall the Lord Jesus was even questioned whether he provided for that, and that's where the fish came in, in which the coin was in the mouth and so forth. So they went up there for this occasion, for the Passover. They're going for the Passover to worship God, to be in obedience, and people are coming from all over. To get a perspective on it, I'll just give you what Josephus said, and I'll give it to you very quickly. What Josephus records in his recording of history was, he said approximately 3 million people could be seen in Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. Now, that's quite a few people even for today. And, that's, and to picture it, some of you, maybe most of you, hopefully the majority of you, watched the inauguration of the president that just came in, and they're estimating, it's been all over the place, but I think the clearest estimation without exaggerations is somewhere in the vicinity of a million people. Well, if you saw what that looked like, now triple it. And that's what you've got in Jerusalem, just to get a picture of a crowd so in your mind's eye you can see what happened here. So what happened? All of these people are conversion, converting excuse me, onto, uh, to Jerusalem. And what happened? Well, man came up with some concepts. And it's going to be important to our text that you listen to what I have to say. Man basically reads, look, we've got 3,000 people approximately coming into this area and they're making these pilgrimages, let's make it convenient. What do you mean, let's make it convenient? You know, they're coming from all over, and it won't be an easy task to take these animals with them, and it won't be an easy task because they're coming from various parts of the world with different type of coinage. So let's make it easy. Let's make it convenient. Let's make it practical. How are we going to do that? Well, since they have to have an animal, let's sell them the animal so they don't have to come with the animal. And let's set up an exchange for them. And by the way, I like the way the words are used because it's no different from what you do in an airport today when you go to a foreign country. When you go and you want to get money in a foreign country, you go to the exchange and you exchange it, uh, you exchange your American dollars for whatever, euros if you're going there, because that's what they use. That's what you had here. Every Jewish male, and by the way, the females didn't have to do this again, but every Jewish male had to pay one shekel. And it had to be, by the way, it had to be a shekel. 
That's why you've got money changers. They couldn't just bring a Roman coin, unacceptable. They couldn't bring other coins of that day, unacceptable. They had to turn in one shekel to the temple. That's why the money exchangers. Since the pilgrims were coming from all over, they would set up this money exchange so that they brought in the money, they would give them the shekel, the shekel could then be given to the temple. And they didn't have to carry all of that money. They didn't have to come with all these animals. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? I think it would. And I think it would to you, too, today. I think it would to you, too, today, and to me. Sounds like a great idea. They're going to worship, we can make it convenient. But let me say something right away. And listen up for this part of the message, at least. What is it? When it comes to worshiping God, you worship God, God's way. He's concerned about the methodology as much as he's concerned about the content of what you are doing in me. They didn't get it. They thought, well, I got the animals. Yeah. I got the coins. Yeah. I'm coming to the temple to obey. Yeah. I'm coming to do it for God and to worship him. Yep, and I'm going to do it the most convenient way for me. Uh-uh. I'm going to do it in a practical way. Not the way I told you to do it. And that's what they're going to say. What happens? Verse 14. That's only verse 13. Verse 14. Jesus arrives. Where? At the temple. What's that? A place of worship. What happens? Now, I said it was Herod's temple. Let me just give you very quickly. It's obvious from the context. Solomon's temple, which was beautiful, was obviously destroyed. And then they were involved, as they say, verse 20, 46 years in putting the temple basically back together so it could be done and, and worshipped in and so forth. And this is often referred to by the scholars as Herod's temple. It was an enormous temple. For any of you that have visited Israel, you'll probably remember when we saw the scale of the temple You'd see all of these houses and everything else, but it was an enormous temple that could be seen everywhere. It was a symbol of holiness. It was a symbol of prayer. It was a symbol of worship. It was a symbol, all symbols, yes, of where God met with his people. It was a symbol of something special that was not to be marred or tarred by man. It was a symbol in which the true God would be worshipped. And what happened? This structure was enormous. It, was the, uh, it had an outer court for the Gentiles. And then inside the outer court, the women could come, Jewish women, only Jewish women. And then they couldn't go any further. Then inside that court, just to give you the picture of it, was the Jewish men. They could go in a di different area. And then they could only go so far, and then the priest would have their area. So as you got closer and closer and closer, it, to the holiness of God, only certain people could get there. And then in the Holy of Holies, only one priest, and it had to be the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year with the proper sacrifice, etc., all to teach us that you only do things of God God's way. And at the very beginning of his ministry, and I will only say that for you scholars that are sitting out there that were waiting for an answer on this, I believe there's two cleansings of the temple. This one is in the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one in the synoptics is at the end of the Gospels, and I don't think that John just copied it and stuck it in the beginning. I think there's too many distinctions here that happen between the two of them 
though there are some similarities as well. So very early in his ministry, he cleanses the temple, I would say, for the very first time. Why? Look at verse 14. He comes to a temple for worship, and what does he find? Business and commerce. Look at it, verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling the oxen, I told you why they did it, and the sheep and the doves and the money changers seated. He comes into what was probably, now the scriptures don't make this clear, but based on the knowledge of what we have of the temple, it was probably in the biggest area, which is where the Gentiles could meet. So they wouldn't allow this in beyond that, where the men and the women could go, only in that area, in all probability. And what happens is there's all kinds of business going on. What do you think was happening? Think there was any bribery there? Probably. Think there was any sinful acts that were going on in there? I think so. And what happens? Jesus comes in and he basically says, yeah, I know it's my Lord. I know it's God's temple. I know you came here to worship me, so I have no regard for what you're doing, the way you're doing it. It's okay. Is that what you find? Look at verse 15 and 16. He makes a whip. That's what it is. He makes a whip and he drives out the animals. He scatters them. Then what does he do? He throws over the table for the exchangers. Then what does he do? Verse 16, very graciously, says to those that are selling the doves, rather than scattering them like the animals, because they could be gathered, he graciously says to those that are the doves, get them out of here, basically. Take these things away, and he says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. I do not approve of what you are doing. That's what he says. Now picture this. What do you mean? Three million people in the area. What have you got? You've got the religious leaders there, for sure. What else you got? Temple police. Absolutely. And one man, God, yes, but picture it. One man comes in to this whole thing, and he's not arrested. Nobody gangs up on him. Nobody says, stop what you're doing. You can't do it. Listen to this. His disciples don't even join in and help him. They're standing there in awe. Nobody can stop him. Why? God, very God, is in their presence. And this is absolutely unacceptable. God, as far as he's concerned, he's concerned about the method that we worship him as much as he's concerned about the actions that we carry out. And he has said that from the beginning of Scripture. In fact, he gets to the point with Israel, you look at this on your own, in Isaiah chapter 1 where he says, who in the world told you to bring these animals? Who in the world told you, what are you doing? Their right answer would have been, you told us to do this. He says, I'm sick and tired of your sacrifices. Tear your heart. Your heart isn't even in it. You're just doing it. And it's unacceptable to me. He speaks as one with authority. My father, identifying again himself as God. This is my father's house. He reminds them 
of what they're supposed to be doing. My father's house is not a house of merchandise. And in verse 17, you notice the zeal of thy house. He uses actually a future tense. It's interesting for those who want to look at it closely. But in quoting the Old Testament, he uses the future here. And what it is, even the disciples recognize that he had a zeal for the things of God. Does he want obedience? Yes. But Jesus Christ also had a passion for holiness. He had a passion for reverence. He had a passion for respect. That is gone in our society today, in my opinion. And I say, in my opinion. Even children are not taught to respect adults anymore. And parents, you set the tone. You say, how do I do that? The minute you don't have them call you mom and dad and you want them on a first-name basis, you set the tone. See, that's just your personal opinion. You watch. Because they'll do the same thing with anyone in authority. Call them by their first name. You have the privilege and honor of being called mom and dad that no one else can be called. When they get to be older, that's a different story. But you're still their mom and dad. We've lost it. We've lost respect. And they had lost respect for the one that they were supposed to be coming to worship. They were not concerned about distinction anymore. They wanted to be like the world. Hey, wouldn't it be a great idea? We can have our own little, basically, set up here where we can sell things and we can do things and we can still worship God. That's not what God wanted. He didn't want identification with the world. He was never looking for convenience. He just gave orders of what he expected to be done. It was his disciples that quoted from Psalm 69.9, and that's where it comes from. What did they recognize? That the one in their presence was inflexible when it came to righteousness, inflexible when it came to the things of God. And while he is a loving God, while he is a compassionate person, while he did provide at the wedding feast, he is absolutely also concerned with the holiness of God. And this merchandise was not part of his agreements. Let me ask you this much. Just through verse 17. How do you, how do I react to sin? He was absolutely outraged and threw the tables up. We have a tendency to, you know what? Excuse it. Tolerate it. How do you react to things? And I understand the difference. I'll get there. Give me a second. How do you react to the abuse of things that have been designated for worship? They weren't concerned. How do you react? How do I react? Listen. To God's design for, you ready? Routine. We forget. There have been years bringing animals, animals. I'm getting tired of doing this. Why do I want to bring an animal? Get it there for me. Let me purchase it. Make it convenient. Why do we have to keep going through the same sacrifice the same way all the time? Let's make it different. You talk about routine. Let's make it convenient. I don't want to take this animal all the way from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. Or in that case, it would have been up. 
I don't want to bring it all the way from Sidon down there. It's too long. It's too hard. Just sell them. We'll get them there. Make it convenient for us. Make it so when we worship God, it's the easiest way possible for us to do it. Now, you might think Pastor Dan's going way off on a tangent. That, my friend, is a picture of Christianity today. You make worship the most convenient thing possible for me. No routine. Everything easy. My way or I won't come. And I'm not necessarily talking about this church. I'm talking about Christianity. Some, believe it or not, listen, have defined the Protestant service, that which is what is going on right here, as the Protestant mass. And said it's no different from Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholics have their mass. Protestants make their appearance in church. And both groups just go and do what they want, whenever they want, the way they want. And if they can't make it at a certain time, they'll go when it's convenient to them. I don't know whether that's accurate or not. Some view the Protestant service as an entertainment center. What can I get out of the service? What can you give me to keep me interested? Are you kidding me? Shouldn't it be enough that Jesus was going to the temple and the disciples because they were in obedience to God and they wanted to worship the one living God who had delivered them? Shouldn't that be enough excitement? Shouldn't it be enough excitement for a Christian today to say that I've been saved I've been saved from the doom of hell, the condemnation of sin, and I have opportunity to come together to open a word of God that by his privilege he's given to us in our hands and I can just be together? Shouldn't that be excitement enough? No, we've got to have everything else. What was their action? Verse 18. Verse 18, the Jews, and I'm not sure who the Jews are, just to get right to the issue. It doesn't say. Were these the merchants? Was this the Jewish authorities? I don't know. It's pretty open there. Was it the Jewish police? Could have been. But notice the reaction again. And by the way, how could Jesus do this? Because he is God. I mentioned that. And he was the Savior that was entering the temple. I'll come back to that in a minute. Notice they don't arrest him. They didn't arrest him. If he wasn't doing what's right, don't you think he would have been arrested? He would have been jumped on. They couldn't do it. There's no arrest. What do they say? You talk about foolishness. Look at what they say. What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Why do you say foolishness? Come on. What more sign do you need? I just showed you a sign. It's unacceptable. You would have, what other sign do you need? But they are assigned people. They want reasons behind this. They want something they can understand that's got to be acceptable to them. When they say, show us a sign. You know what? He's gracious enough that he's going to give them another sign. You know what that is? That's in your notes and your outline. It's the temple of Jesus. Verses 19 to 22. He was speaking of his body. And he says, you want a sign? 
He said, destroy this temple, not the one that he just turned everything over on. And in three days, I will raise it up. I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the structure, verse 21, and then they found out that he was talking about the temple of his body. Why? Jesus Christ came to be, while he saw all of those animals, he was the one true sacrifice. Those animals can never take away from uh, sin. And I want you to catch this, folks. Jesus Christ is the only Lamb of God, the only acceptable sacrifice. There is no religion on the face of the earth. There is no church on the face of the earth, including this one. There is no person on the face of the earth, including this minister, including those people sitting in the pew next to you, that can save you and bring you into the presence of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ came because God loved the world so much that he came to offer himself as the sin sacrifice to satisfy a righteous and a holy God who hates sin and would not overlook sin and won't overlook your sin. And you cannot save yourself, but Jesus Christ can. And he did go to the cross, bore that penalty, and rose from the dead. Notice what it says in verse 19. The scriptures bring all three aspects of the Trinity together. He said, I will raise it up. He got up out of the grave because there is no way to hold God down. And God had to die for us because no man could. And you could never be good enough to weigh out your, oh, your bad works so you can get to heaven. The only way is through Jesus Christ. And he said to them, you knock this temple down, meaning my body, which they did on the cross, and I'll raise it up in three days. And he did. And it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that you can have forgiveness of sins or I can have forgiveness of sins. He's talking about that sacrifice. So he comes into this temple, and he comes there. The people were coming out of obedience, but they had made a charade out of the worship of God. And I can't tell you any more from my heart than I'm trying to say to you, and I wish if there was ever a message I could get to the world right now, it would be this that I'm saying right now. I believe that God is looking down a lot of what Christianity is doing today, and it's a charade. It's not worship. It's done in the name of worship in many different ways. Now, does that say we have to, by the way, listen, does Fellowship Bible Church have the only way to worship? Absolutely not. You don't have to do everything our way. But you should leave a building like this having been confronted with the Word of God having gone out of here with the primary thing as having heard from God through his word, no matter where you're worshiping God. And secondly, that everything that was done in that atmosphere caused you to worship God. And whether it was the music, whether it was the giving, whatever was done, caused your focus of attention to go to God and didn't just fancy your entertainment. Our temple is our body, number one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is the temple of, of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you are not your own? We are to worship God with our being, yes. You've heard it from me before, so I'll give it to you again. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, mark it down. And also 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, the scriptures are clear. It uses the you plural. When we come together like we have done today, this morning, we are together collectively and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a portion of God's 
universal body that's functioning together in a local assembly to worship God. So believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to some building. So this building or structure is nothing important. It's not. We could be meeting in a house. We could be meeting outside. You don't have to be meeting inside. But also when we come together, and I'm saying that because as a local church, when we come together to worship God, when we come together to open the word, when we come together to break bread together, when we come together to have a baptism service, when we come together to pray, we are coming together as the temple of the Holy Spirit collectively. And everything that we do is to center on worshiping him. We should be zealous for the things of God. We should want distinction. Israel got pulled out of the world by God so that they would be different from the world, not like them. But they became like them. And then the church of Jesus Christ was raised up and he has saved us from our sins so that we would be different from the world, not like it. That doesn't mean that you dress funny. And I can say that because I do dress funny. I can't even match things. If it wasn't for my wife, I'd really look like a fool. And I'm just saying that realistically. I'm, I'm serious. You know, it's, I, you don't dress weird. That isn't the idea. The, what I'm talking about is our worship should really be centered on him. We shouldn't be trying to adapt it so that if, when people leave the service, they go away thinking that they've been at a rock concert. Or when they go away, they think they've been in the theater. Keep the rock concerts where they are. Keep the theaters in the theaters. And keep the word of God and the worship where it should be. In our lives personally, yes, but collectively. And now let me drive it home in closing to really get myself in trouble. Why are you here? Why am I here? Because God called me to be here. I believe that with all my heart. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here for bingo. We're not here to have somebody meet our fancy. Why is it that we hear Christians saying that I'm bored? Are you kidding me? If you're bored with God, something's wrong. Say, no, I'm just bored with you, Pastor Dan. I can understand that. But if somebody's just breaking the word of God, I don't care if they stumble over every word. When this book is opened, it ought to cause my... I'm telling you from my heart. When I sit down and hear somebody else bring the word, I'm talking about a student. When I hear somebody else, my heart is challenged by the word. Christians today are basically saying, entertain me. Make me happy today. If you're not happy with God, something's wrong. We should be here for worship. We should be here for fellowship. We should be here for God's word. And to put it as simple as I can, you should come every time when we're together to give, not to get. To give of yourselves to serve one another. To give of yourselves to God with a thankful heart. That is the sacrifice that's acceptable to him. A heart that's got thanksgiving and praise, not complaining and boredom and looking for something beyond. These people thought it was convenient, and it was. 
to sell animals and to sell the coins. It was convenient, but it wasn't what God wanted. Be honest. Do you come only when it's convenient for you? Now, there's legitimate things. We've been faced, I said that to you, we were faced the last two weeks. Can we even have the service? Which service can we have? And to the best of our ability, we try to consider the circumstances and the, and the situation. But I'm telling you, I'm amazed. I really am. That many times when we have it in a difficult situation, you know who make it out? The older people. The people that got to come the farthest. Why? I don't know. I can't answer that for every situation. You see, we ought to have flexibility. Listen to me now. Because this is sometimes where we don't have flexibility. We ought to have flexibility with music, yes. We ought not to be trying to have music that's just going to entertain just the adults, so the only thing they know is maybe the hymns in this book. Because sometimes the adults say, you know, I don't know, it's not a hymn in the book and whatever. But neither should we be just trying to entertain the young people and saying the only way we can keep them in church is to give them the music they want. We're not here for music. And we should be meeting both the adults and the, the kids. That's why we try to have new things as well as the old. There should be a good combination because we are here to worship together. We shouldn't be thinking that my Bible version is the only Bible version that anybody can touch. I'm being practical, folks. I hope. But sometimes it's that way that unless it's the version that I got with the same color, with the same number of margin, it's no good. We ought to be thankful that we have some good versions of the Bible today. And that ought to be the issue. Or the times. If the service isn't from this time to this time, I ain't going. Well, then go someplace where it is the time for your convenience. But you better examine your heart me too. I'm talking to me as well as you. We, we, we have so many things, you know, that we can come up with for excuses. I can't sit. I can't stand. I can't do this. I can't do that. And as soon as you walk out of the building, you'll sit, you'll stand, you'll do this, you'll do that, and so forth. Be honest. How is it that all of a sudden you can do it? Because you. Okay. The bottom line is it's not about me, and it's not about you. They lost focus of the Passover, one of the most significant things in their mind, because they were delivered. They were doomed. They were delivered, and God did it. And they were going to the temple because God required it in obedience. Why? So that they would never forget who he was and what he did. Why do we come to church here? You know why we're coming to church here? Because we want to remember what our Savior did for us. We want to open this book because in this book is the revelation of what he's like. And he's concerned about the way we do things as much as what we do. And he shows that in this passage to us. And we ought to come out of a love and appreciation with a heart full of thanksgiving. And whether it's convenient or whether it's routine or what it is. Now, I'm saying that. I do have to say this before I close. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to change things. We should. You've got to be obvious that there's, there's things that you can change to improve things. 
But I'm going to tell you something, and there are some people of old who opened up the Word of God, and all they did was read, and they read their notes, and they read them through, and the people would snore louder than they do sometimes on me, and so forth. And, and what would happen, seriously, and, but you know what? If the Word of God's being opened up and faithfully preached, it ought to delight our soul. It ought to delight our soul. And to bring it home to you, when you go home, if you're not reading the Word, then your temple, your body, is never putting itself before God on a regular basis. I am absolutely astounded by people who are in teaching assemblies never read the Word of God on their own. How are you worshiping God? You say, well, it's just not when I'm sitting with my Bible. Of course not. It's at work. It's in your relationships. It's out in the street with your neighbors. That's how you worship God all the time, whether you eat, you drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know that verse. So everything. But you can't get to know him without being in the book. You've got to spend time reading the word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was righteous in what he did because his zeal was for the things of God and the concern with not just what they were doing, but how they were doing what they were doing. And I challenge you that we ought to be concerned for the same things. And might God help us to do that until we draw our last breath if we're the only ones standing to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for this text where the Lord Jesus Christ, even in obedience, went up for the Passover and there as part of the worship observed things that should have never been going on Convenient, yes. Thought through, yes. Practical, yes, but not your way. And I pray, Father, and ask that you'd help us in our own lives, individually, and then collectively as an assembly. And Father, we pray for all faithful assemblies that are preaching the word of God. I pray for them from my heart right now, that they would examine what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing that we would even examine our own hearts as to why we come together collectively. That, Father, we might worship you truly in spirit and truth. That our hearts might be filled with thanksgiving. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive me for the hurt that we cause to one another. For the hurt that we cause to the name of Jesus Christ while we profess faith in him. I pray, Father, for those that are visiting with us that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to see that this one that emptied the, emptied, entered the temple was the one that laid down his life, paid the penalty and price for sin, and did rise the third day, just as he said. And it is only through him that a person can have forgiveness of sins by placing their faith in his finished and completed work. Oh, Father, draw them to him, that they might believe right there in the pew. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us as believers to examine why we do what we do and how we do what we do, that, Father, we might be found pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name.